This was really fun. It was really difficult, though, and I wish I had picked a little easier tree for my first. But I, I learned that it was probably just better for me to not worry so much about the colors and the shading and just try to get the basic shape of the tree, like the basic shapes of the branches and... Um, otherwise, it was just going to be, it would have taken me forever if I wanted to do get the perfect coloring and the perfect shading and all that stuff. So that's something I, before I even started painting, I'm like, I'm going to have to do this as simply as I can. Um, the other thing was, and this is so silly, is that when I was looking at this tree, you know how like you tend to draw trees like coming out of the ground at a wide very wide and then they kind of slant in and, and go up but as I was looking at this tree I'm like oh my gosh this comes straight out of the ground just like straight up and I mean a lot of trees do that if I think about it but I've never really thought about it you know so that was really cool and it just I love nature study and I love watercolor painting and all of that because it really does just help you to notice things which is wonderful but I'm so glad that you're doing this and it's really fun to paint along with you Thank you, Katie. That was great. I really enjoyed hearing what she learned, and I enjoyed reading every single one of all of your email responses to me, all of your Instagram post responses to my questions. I think the questions that I asked were, what did you learn about this specific tree that you were drawing? What would you have done differently if you had another chance for a second one? And what were your difficulties? So I know we had some, this was sort of an unexpected type of challenge for some of you. So I'm really encouraged that you have all done this and you've done really hard work and that we're all doing this together. It's been fun. So I suppose I shouldn't skip introductions. I know I have a few new listeners out there. So hi, all of you. I'm Dallas Noctegal. I'm your host on the show of Bestowing the Brush. Thanks for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. This podcast is all about drawing, visual art, um, the study of those things as it relates to and is informed by a Charlotte Mason philosophy of education. And if you don't know anything about that, I'll provide a link for you in my show notes. She is, she may change your life. I'll just say that in a nutshell. She may change your life and everything that you know about education, home education, and yourself. Hey, really quick here. I also wanted to let you know if you don't already follow me on Instagram, I'm at bestowing the brush. You can find a lot of stuff over there. I have a lot up on my IGTV. So click that little circle that's right underneath my face icon with a little TV icon in the middle of it. And you'll just find a bunch of videos that I have recorded for you to help you with various things and with some of the questions that I have gotten from the Fessole Club. But coming up this Friday, May 3rd, at 2 p.m. Central Time, I'm going to go on Instagram Live and lead you in some painting practice. If you are able to get all of your materials ready, and you can be on Instagram at 2 o'clock Central Time, we can paint together. And I'd love to share some things with you. Sometimes you just need a few ideas to really get you going. And sometimes you just need the accountability of sitting down to practice. And sometimes that's more fun when you know others are doing the same thing. Plus, 
no one can see what you're doing. So all of your mistakes will be kept to yourself. But I'd love to help you in any way, dispel fears about working with watercolor, especially if you're a beginner and you're new to this. Check me out on there if you don't already. I'm excited. See you there, guys. But moving forward, let's talk about this month's Fesole Club. So what you didn't know about that prompt was that W.G. Collingwood was really trying to illustrate the important factor in fresco painting and in watercolor painting, which would be the importance of following a contour. So that would be natural curves that just naturally occur in nature. So because you've done a lot of hard seeing work with those pesky branches, some of you had really difficult ones. I know a couple of you did walnut trees. I'm sure that was an adventure. Now you will be further equipped to do this month's paper. So let's listen in to W.G. Collingwood explain to us what we'll be doing in this month of May. Paper number three, flower studies in the fresco school. The leaves have not yet come upon the trees, and we must wait a while before proceeding with our studies of foliage. But we can lead up to them and prepare ourselves for them by some careful watching of the smaller and simpler kinds of plant life. Any small ground-growing flower will do for study, provided that you get it with the ground it grows on. In town, you can buy a primrose root for a few pence, in any part of the country, you can dig one up in your garden or by the wayside, then set it in a shallow box about a foot square or in a little tray or dish, along with such tufts of moss, weed, and grass as grow around it naturally. Bits of stone also, if you like, to fill out the box and imitate a real bank. The best thing of all would be to cut a turf without disturbing its accidents of dead leaves and tangled shoots. All march begun with April's endeavor, and transfer that as it stands into your tray. You will now have a bit of nature brought indoors. No wet days, no wind, and wintry weather can prevent your quiet study. The roots can be watered and they will keep fresh as long as they are needed. In that alone, they have a great advantage over a cut posy, which droops or withers only too soon, and a cut posy is not quite natural. Our first object in this lesson is to observe and note down in the simplest manner the radiating lines of growth, the springing curves of life, the way the plant comes out of the earth, and the poise of the flower upon its stalk. Much of this is lost when flowers are picked and put in water. More than that, we may reasonably expect a charm and an interest in nature's own arrangement of her decorative objects. In her harmonious composition of differently shaped and variously tinted leaves, in her economy of exciting color, for flowers do not grow in bouquets, but in constellations. These traits of character and turns of behavior are family secrets among flowers, revealed only to their friends, and you know them well only when you know them at home. 
This portable garden, then, can be set up as you set the lemon on a cabinet or shelf, or on a pile of books or boxes. On this, it can be propped so that it slopes a little toward you, as if it were part of the surface of a wayside bank, just below, but not much below, the level of your eye. It should be 10 or 12 feet distant from you, for you want to see it as a whole, not pouring into its minor details as if you wanted to make a botanical diagram of the pattern on its wrinkled leaves, but getting the true relations of light and dark color and the broad effect of undulating surface. When you come to paint, do not go up to it every now and again to peep into the obscure or tangled parts. If anything looks obscure, paint it obscure. If you see a tangle, try to match the color of the space without following out the details. For you will see what you would not see if you had the primrose on the table beside you. The spring of the lines and the gradation of the surface of the leaves and the tender softness of the petals, not cut up by any hard marks and violent, exaggerated modeling. In a word, you put yourself at the point of view of one of the early Italian fresco painters who gave truth without pettiness and breadth without emptiness, and you abandon the point of view of the vulgar still-life painters, the painters of flies on cast-iron books and dewdrops on waxy lilies. The difference between these two standpoints is the distance of the highest from the lowest aims in art. Before you begin to paint, measure one of the nearest and most important flowers so that you draw it strictly life-size, and then pencil down the subject without further measurement which would only mislead you. Since the whole thing is in perspective owing to the slope of the box, and because some of the plants come in front of the others, not to mention the foreshortening of the leaves themselves. So, one measurement, the breadth of one flower, will be enough to fix the scale of your drawing. Sketch that flower in the middle of your paper. Add the rest around it in due proportion and position so that the whole picture is filled up with flowers, leaves, and stones without showing either box or background. You will see that there is the making of a beautiful picture there, a window at any rate, over a garden of fadeless blooms. When the shapes have been settled with penciled outlines, get someone to criticize, remembering that it is always possible to make a mistake. A fresh eye, that is, anyone except the student, may discover mistakes that escaped the fatigued and accustomed eye. At this stage of the proceeding, it costs little to make an alteration. Later on, you may have to throw your drawing away in disgust at finding how the beauty of the subject depends on the right size of each space of color and its right position two conditions which require an accurate outline. So spare no trouble to get the spaces rightly planned out or placed in relation to one another, and then stop, for that will be enough at one sitting. Put the work away till next day. Not, however, till next week, or you may find that your garden has grown and that you have to do the sketch all over again. At the next sitting, take a fine pen, Put some wet paint, 
brown or black into your pen with the brush and draw your outlines neatly. That is to say, the contours or coastlines of the color masses only, not the little markings and details which are not edges, but shades. Then rub out the pencil. But, says someone, here is teaching quite contrary to the accepted methods of art. There is no outline in nature, nor in good painter's work that we see in exhibitions. There is no outline in nature, but there is an edge to most things, and that edge in such objects as the human figure, flowers, landscape detail, and so on, is definite and beautiful. It is a line, an ideal or mathematical line, not a solid black one, but it cannot be separately studied and independently represented without using a drawn line to stand for the impalpable but actual limit line. Unless you study it separately and independently, giving undivided attention, you are likely to ignore it and never appreciate form. That is why some sort of outline is desirable in students' work. And the laws of Fesole lay it down that it must be a pen outline or a fine brush line, which is much more difficult to draw. Because the first penciling is likely to be undecided, which implies some clumsiness and error, and needs to be corrected by the pen line, continuous, unbroken, equal in thickness throughout, and as delicate as you like. But Ruskin says that you can't outline candle flames in cotton wool, and yet he tells the student to outline his studies. Is not this one of those contradictions which are said to abound in his writings? Precisely. And a very good specimen for these contradictions are mostly verbal and not real. They do not exist in the author's mind, but only in the reader's when he has misunderstood either the general drift or the exact limitation of the matter in question. Flames and cotton wool and such like edgeless objects can be painted only as tours de force and are not subjects for students. In our primrose and tufts of feathery grass, wherever no edge is visible, draw none. Where one color fades by gradation into another, Paint it so, by working two wet tints simultaneously together. The laws of Fesole only ask that where you do see an edge, it should be drawn with the fine point and with full attention to all its delicacy and beauty so that you acquire the habit of looking for form rather than contenting yourself with conventional blots of pleasant or forcible color. The distance of the object from your eye will save you from all niggling and pettiness of treatment. But, says a third, how about the majority of modern artists who don't outline, who greatly object to a hard outline, as they call it, and insist on softness? In many pictures, there has been a most careful outline, which is only obliterated by the strength of the color. In others, the outline, though not drawn with a point, is expressed by dexterous limitation of touches and washes, in a way which no beginner can rival. Since this was first written, there has been a great development of 
brush drawing for small children, showing that something of the artist's power is within reach of anybody. As we proceed, you will see that we gradually drop the pen line and get to pure brushwork. But as these lessons are planned for learners who are not in a kindergarten and not under immediate superintendence of a teacher, the old reasons for outlining still, I think, hold good. The English school of watercolor painting began in a method very like that which we are following, with careful, severe outline, often with the reed pen, clearly tinted with color. From that, the art advanced to the fuller and more complicated methods, such as those of William Hunt. His plan was to outline very sketchily and, as he said, fudge out the painting with clever washes and free touches, hatching and stippling in transparent and solid color, processes which he could never explain to his pupils nor give any reason for, just because they were the uncodified result of his own peculiar talent and experience. But he began in his youth with the severe style of the old-fashioned school. His method was practically that from which the watercolor painting of the pre-Raphaelites was originally derived, and that of Frederick Walker and his school, though they made such use of body color, in the end, as created in a new manner, like distemper painting. Fifty or sixty years ago, Ruskin tried to get his pupils to paint somewhat like old William Hunt, sketching in and fudging out with great attention to local color and texture. He found, however, during a long experience, that the average untalented beginner needs a much more certain method and definite guidance, and one that ensures attention to the higher qualities of art. It is dangerous to tell him to be clever, to be free, to aim at quality and surface. That is like encouraging the piano student to storm the keyboard before he can finger scales. In all the arts, the most romantic and emotional masters start from the severe classic school and recur to it with pleasure. Byron, with his passion and audacity, leans upon Pope. Mendelssohn, all melody and sentiment, you would think, bases his tunes on the counterpoint of Bach. And in an age which found its expression in the softness of Reynolds, the sketchiness of Gainsborough, and the slapdash of Romney, it was the height of taste to admire the works of Pietro Perugino. All the chief early schools of Italy, in which the great masters studied, lean upon the undisguised outline. And necessarily, as practicing chiefly fresco, in which decision, certainty, and distinctness are absolutely required. Beginning in that way, the great painters both of Italy and England developed their own talents in their own way. We can't ask better than to start as they started, from old mother outline, as Blake said. But, once more, a primrose is, if anything, soft, fragile, and delicate. Will not the outline make it look hard? Not of necessity. Not if the lines are continuous and even, delicate and beautifully curved. 
the gradations gentle, the color clear, the relations of light and dark accurate, the tones broad, the detail unexaggerated. It is not the vagueness or blur of the edge that makes a face or a flower soft, but the truth of relief and the delicacy of modeling. In the study, then, for the second sitting, get a fine pen outline, giving the radiating curvature of stems and leaves, which you will feel with its full force after the lesson in tree boughs last month. And then, with all the doubts and difficulties of drawing put aside, proceed at the third sitting to color, on the principle of matching tints and finishing at once. And here you will be exemplifying the third principle of fresco. The first was the breadth of mass. The next, definition of contour. And now, freshness of color resulting from decisive execution. Each primrose flower should be done at once, without retouching. In one brush take diluted pale chrome yellow for the lights. In another, faint yellow ochre and cobalt matched beforehand for the shades and lay them on without hesitating, letting them run one into another where they meet so as to produce their own natural gradations, which are so much more perfect than any stippling or sponging can elaborate. If you need to take out lights, wipe them out before the tint dries, using a clean brush which has been wetted and nearly dried on your paint rag. You may at first think the darks are not strong enough, and want to reinforce them. But beware, the fresh tint and first wet gradations will give softness and luminosity. And if you have matched carefully, trust to your matching. Of the leaves, match both lights and darks. Use whatever paints will represent them. Not violent metallic greens like Viridian, nor crude mixtures of Prussian blue and gamboge and such like. A quiet pigment, cleanly laid and not fouled by subsequent rubbing or washing, gives a much sweeter and stronger tint than you might suppose, so that cobalt and raw sienna will probably be green enough for your leaves. One sitting should suffice for the coloring of the study, which will look highly finished without labor for most of the time is spent in watercolor work, in retrieving mistakes and polishing coarseness, from both of which you are delivered by the new old method of wet work, the fresco style of fesole. Author's Notes The primrose lesson was so simple that the drawings sent in were nearly all successful. Some of the directions or suggestions perhaps require a little emphasis and explanation. In setting up any still life model, see that some part of it is on the level of your eye as you stand or sit at work. If you look down on your subject, you will paint a picture which everybody must look down upon to see it rightly. But usually pictures are hung up to be looked at, more or less on the level of the eye. Seeing the picture when done ought to be like looking at the model when it was being painted. Therefore, also, when you hang your pictures, don't hang them very high or low on the wall, 
A good deal of the wearisome of exhibitions comes from the necessity of adapting your eyes to unnatural points of view for skied or floored pictures, and this need never happen in a private house. The student's outline is merely the guide to correct placing and shape of color masses. Do not, therefore, make it into an elaborate pen drawing of textures and details but consider it as the boundaries of countries and countries on a colored map, and don't put in rivers, roads, and mountains, i.e. ribs of a leaf, etc. The directions for coloring proceed on the assumption that the work is done in pure and transparent watercolor, without Chinese white. We came to body color later on in our Fesole Club, but at first, Chinese white in a beginner's brush generally means daubing. Well, that was a quite clear paper, I think. I really enjoyed listening to his fake objections there that he was dialoguing with some unknown person. But really helpful because I think that we talk about some of these same things today. And if not in other types of education, there sure have been outline versus brush drawing debates that I think need not happen. Um, these are done in two different parts of a child's education. Brush drawing would be what your earliest forms start with as a foundational study of form and color. And then we move on to a little bit more difficult and a little bit more studied and renaissance type, master type picture painting drawing here. Be encouraged that all of your work in doing brush drawing is really actually foundational to what we're doing here. This is a different way to study form. However, the brush drawing is invaluable as so many parents review article authors have also agreed. Tell me what you think about all that, but let's talk about choosing your model. Any small ground growing flower will do and include it with the ground it grows on. If it's on your own property, especially, I don't want to see any of you guys digging up state park property. That would be bad. If it's on your property and there happen to be lovely wildflowers, go for it. I would say another option would be to go to a botanical store or your friendly neighborhood home improvement store and get yourself a simple bunch of flowers that you can then transplant and put them into more of an organic sort of arrangement. And for that, I would say an appropriate action would be to look up some some photographs of some riverbanks where there are wildflowers growing or on your next nature walk, try to notice any flower constellations that you see growing along a bank. Bonus points if you get moss and rocks in yours somehow. You guys are resourceful people. I trust you and I cannot wait to see what you come up with. So I'm sure we will have a lot of variety this month, and I'm really excited about that. Setting up your still life. Okay, let's think about the objects of this exercise. This is for observing and noting down the frankest manner of the radiating lines of growth, the springing curves of life, as he says, the way the plant comes out of the earth, and the poise of the flower upon its stalk. And he also says that we know them well when we know them at home. So we're just sort of going to study this in the comfort of our home with 
a little bit of an artificial twist on how to set it up so that we can spend three days on it and not have to mark where our chair was at out in the wild and have any wind factors and light factors that might add some extra challenge and variable to it. However, if you're up for that, and if you're able to do that, that would seem to be pretty hard. You could always try. We want to recognize the beauty in nature's own arrangement of her decorative objects, in the harmonious composition of differently shaped and various tinted leaves, and in her economy of exciting color. So you want to see it as a whole, and you don't want to pour over its minor details. That was elucidated here. Getting the true proportions of relations of light and dark color and getting the broad modulations of undulating surface. Definitely no picking and putting these things in water. Also important is to set it up at or a little below your eye level, 10 to 12 feet away. Again, that's for obscuring the detail so that you're looking at it more broadly and have it be a little tilted toward you to mimic them being along a bank. If anything looks weird, obscure, paint it weird and obscure. If you see no detail, don't try to put in any detail. He states it well when he says, give truth without pettiness and breadth without emptiness. Sitting down to paint. So your first step is to measure one of the nearest and most important flowers so that you draw it strictly life-size. So use one measurement for that one flower and it will be the length of it. And that will be enough to fix the scale of your drawing. Everything will be surrounding that as related to that. So from that point on, you will just be measuring with your eye. No need to pull out your, your measuring stick again, your compass or whatever you're using. Now outline that flower in the middle of your paper and put the rest around it in due proportion and position. And so do this until the whole thing is filled up with flowers, leaves, and stones without showing either box or background. He assures us that no talent beforehand is needed for this kind of work. So hopefully that is an encouragement to a lot of you beginners out there. You will soon get experience if you try again after failing with your first attempt. And I love how that he mentions that you will fail. You will fail your first attempt. It's likely that you're not perfect, just like me. So do at least two tries on this. You may just want to factor it in in your life, in your time schedule. If you really want to commit to working on this, schedule it in three days in a row. But if you fail the first time, again, try a second. He says that every drawing should take neither less nor more than three sittings on three consecutive days. When the shapes have been settled with pencil outlines, get someone else besides you to look at it. That's an important step because it's always possible that you've made a big mistake and you would rather correct it at this stage, right? Instead of having to throw it away. It's okay to erase. You'll be so much more satisfied with what you put down if you correct it early on. For the second sitting, get a fine pen outline down and you want to be giving the radiating curvature of stems and leaves. And you're going to feel that full force, he said, after the lesson from the tree boughs last month. Now erase all your pencil marks after you've got the pen line in. On your third sitting, your main aim is freshness of color. 
resulting from decisive execution. So how are you going to get that? Each flower should be done at once without retouching. So don't dry a layer and place another layer on top. This will all be done in one fresh wash. In one separate area, mix and match your lighter shade of your flower and your leaves beforehand. And then in another brush, mix up the shade that you will need for your darks. So you're just going to have your two wet brushes handy and reduce it down to those two colors, the lights and the darks. Remember that these two, when wet and put next to each other, are going to naturally and beautifully bleed together. So that is what you want. You want that freshness, that clarity, that beautiful surface gradation of these lovely wildflowers. As he says, they are so much more perfect than any stippling or sponging can elaborate. So to wrap up, with this drawing, things to aim for are a continuous and even line, delicate and beautifully curved, the color gradations gentle, clear, and the relations of light and dark accurate, the tones broad, the detail unexaggerated. All right, entering logistics this month. Remember that the Fesole Club here on Instagram is for anyone. It really is for anyone. But I'll send commentary to those who want it over the age of nine. Under that age, feel free to send me something in only brushwork of those beautiful wayside flowers that you've gotten to tend in your own home. Or maybe some dandelion in your yard. You will have three weeks for these experiments, everyone. From the beginning of May 1st, which is today until Wednesday, May 22nd. Last month's entries worked well. I'd again love to comment on and post one of your drawings, but do remember that practice in painting is much like musical practice. You get better with each try, and you get out of it what you put into it. And keep in mind that this three-day-in-a-row painting process, it should afford you enough mental rest between sittings but do plan for the time needed. Send in your one painting each to my email address, bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. Turn it in by 6 p.m. Central Time on May 22nd. Please give me a first name and age for each entry. So mark on your calendars for that, guys. And of course, use the hashtag FesoleFlowers if you post and just want me and others to see what you're working on. So thanks everyone for participating in this virtual club. You greatly encourage me. Look out for videos on my IGTV this month for Festole help. Okay, happy still life creating, happy drawing. See you soon. <laughs>